The old world is dying, the new world struggles to be born. Now is the time of monsters. With those words, roughly paraphrased from Gramsci, I welcome you to the Time of Monsters podcast here at the Nation magazine, uh, which I'm very grateful is uh, hosting this. Um, for this week, um, I'm very uh, excited to have uh, my friend Rebecca Traster on to talk about a recent article she wrote for New York Magazine, um, where she is a staff writer. Uh, and it's um, uh, an in-depth profile of the uh, uh, California Senator Diane Feinstein and the kind of controversies um, about her. Uh, she's the uh, oldest member of the Senate, um, and there have been reports in the New Yorker, uh, the San Francisco Chronicle, and the New York Times, um, you know, of a sort of whispering whisper campaign as to whether she's really up for the job. Uh, but I think that the uh, Rebecca's piece, uh, uh, and we'll be linking to it um, uh, along with this podcast, is like really I highly recommend it because it's a um, it does a terrific job of like uh, both looking at this debate, but then also telling the you know fascinating human story of, of Feinstein's life, and then the sort of tensions between um, you know how one looks at an individual a very complex individual and the sort of systems um, that might be creating problems uh, uh, for uh, political life um, and, and the real tension between, you know, uh, the admiration that some people might have for Feinstein as against, you know, concerns about um, uh, a political system and particularly a democratic party that is really looks like a gerontocracy uh, and how that is a real barrier towards any sort of real change. Uh, so uh, Rebecca, uh, thanks for being here. Thank you so much for having me, Jeet. It's great to be here. So do you want to like maybe just like um, lay out, uh, well, first of all, well, how did you like start to think about uh, uh, Feinstein as a, as a subject? Like, well, well, why did you want to write, write this is like an in, this is like 8,000 word piece. So you must have spent like a long time like going into this. So I was like, whoa, what, why were you um, in, so invested in this topic? Well, it's interesting because I was actually seeking a subject in the spring um, about who I understood to be a complex and naughty topic. I wanted to, to sort of, um, you know, I, I wanted to come at somebody um, about whom I had ambivalent feelings and a lot of curiosity, right? It was just one, of, you know, every once in a while, like it was just, I wanted to, to try to write a complicated piece about somebody. And when I came to it, I want to be really clear because it's, it's interesting. I think I started on this piece in March and I had no intention of it being about um, her cognitive health, except insofar as it would obviously incorporate reporting that at that point had been done mostly by Jane Mayer. Um, you know, I, in the fall of 2020 in The New Yorker. And of course I under, but, but my, my project was not to uh, investigate the state of Dianne Feinstein's uh, cognitive health. My curiosity and my point of entry here is I was looking toward um, this spring and summer. Um, and of course, because of the nature of my job, part of what I'm thinking about all the time is the, the successful and decades long Republican strategy of rolling back the progressive advancements, many of which were made in the middle of the 20th century, which happens to be about the time that a lot of um, 
senior members of the Democratic Party, Feinstein among them, came to power, right? There's this whole generation of politicians who are very fascinating to me, who sort of came of age and first came into politics. Um, in some cases, not Feinstein's as, you know, adjacent to or part of social and political movements. And in Feinstein's case, kind of alongside those movements and in a, in a sort of backwards way, but because of them and some of the violence that, that um, happened around them. And, uh, and the idea that I was fed for decades, that the Democratic Party were the stewards of those victories, right? Like they're the ones, you know, you're supposed to be voting for the Democratic Party because they're gonna protect Roe and they're gonna protect voting rights and they're gonna, right? And, and yet the Voting Rights Act has been gutted and the, and the Senate can't pass legislation to protect the franchise, um, you know, can't pass any meaningful climate legislation. Roe is about to be either overturned or fully gutted and the Democratic Party can't pass legislation to to protect it, to protect abortion rights and access. And so I was really curious about lots of members of the party who had been in power over these decades when in fact part of their messaging was vote for us, we're going to protect these advancements that were made in the middle of the 20th century, and yet those advancements have been eroded out from under them. And I'm really, every individual who's in that position actually has a different story. Feinstein is particularly interesting to me because I write so much about women in politics. The moment that she came to the Senate, 1992, was one of the explosive moments for the story of women in politics because four women were elected to the Senate that year. It was called the year of the woman, it doubled the number of women who were serving at the time, which was in truly a like dismally, you know, 2% <laughs> of the United States Senate was female. And then after the year of the woman, 5% was female. You know, these, these numbers are, are terrible. And it was in my, that's in my, I was in high school at the time. That is in my lived memory. Um, and so, and, and, you know, as somebody whose politics are to the left of Feinstein's, you know, like, I, I had an ideological critique of her centrism, but that wasn't really the point either. I wanted to learn more about her career, and I knew enough about her early days to understand that a lot of um, those who are vivid and energetic critics of her centrism now um, know her as this incredibly powerful, senior, aged centrist, and uh, in many cases, uh, you know, it, it, who poses some obstructional force to progressive change and who sort of um, hugged Lindsey Graham after the confirmation of Amy Coney Barrett in one of the most dismaying moments in modern politics for me, who who spoke with such scorn and um, condescension to the youth Sunrise activists who came to her office um, to push her to do more in terms of, uh, in, in terms of uh, environmental policy and but but lost is the early history of her in politics and i'm fascinated by that so i wanted to tell that story and i wanted to sort of use her as emblematic of this generation um within her party to to understand how this generation that came to power in that period more diverse than any that had that had been in power before them um and who advertised themselves as the as the guardians of this progress then presided and had power as that progress was eroded out from under them. So that was the the entry point, and it wasn't about um, it wasn't about her cognitive health. And then while I was reporting it, the San Francisco Chronicle published this very lengthy um, and troubling story about 
um, what they reported as her cognitive decline and the New York Times followed up on that. And so then it's sort of inevitably the reporting that I was always gonna, gonna incorporate, right? This was always gonna be questions about gerontocracy here. Um, but it, it by necessity had to include more direct um, interrogation of, of her cognitive health. And then much to my shock, absolute shock, um, she got on the phone with me a couple of weeks ago. I didn't expect her to participate in the story. And in fact, um, you know, her office didn't respond to my queries for months. And then in the very last couple of weeks of reporting um, after the shooting in Uvalde, Texas, um, they put her on the phone with me. And so I actually had a half hour interview with her, which is not something I expected. Yeah, yeah, no, the, 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 that's interesting. The, I mean, I the um, I mean the the story you ended up writing um, I, does have like all those components, and in particularly that sort of generational story, and um, uh, which I think ties into the gerontocracy. But I think the generational story you write to sort of foreground it is a kind of an amazing uh, sweep of period. From um, she entered politics, I believe, in 1969, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, you know, like all the changes that have happened since then. Um, the uh, do you want to like? I think it may be uh, good for our listeners to just get a little bit of like, you know, just a sense of who she was and where she came in from. Um, I mean, you are right that uh, you you mentioned this. Um, like, there's a sort of cohort of um, uh, people coming in from social movements uh, in the 60s and 70s from, you know, like the um, black um, um, uh, activism, civil rights activism, feminism, uh, gay rights. And she's like, I think you're, I think your understanding of her as being adjacent to that is exactly right. Adjacent right. is like a real, like almost physical way. But do you wanna like just say, yeah, who, 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 who is Diane Feinstein? Where, where, where does she come from? So she's she's um, a San Francisco native. She comes from a very wealthy family in San Francisco. Her father was the first Jewish head of surgery at the University of California, San Francisco uh, Hospital. Um, she came from actually a, an emotionally abusive household. Her mother, who had uh, suffered from encephalitis as a child, um, as an adult, was a very abusive parent. Um, and But that was kind of hidden. And uh, she grew up in this very rarefied San Francisco um, world and went to Stanford, went to, a, went to a Catholic school. She was Jewish. She was raised Jewish, um, went to a very prestigious Catholic school in San Francisco where she, one of the things I found and one of, one of the things I discovered in doing so much reading and reporting about her is um, how much she seems to enjoy the... Um, aesthetics of institutionalism and hierarchy and Catholic yeah. school was one of the first illustrations of that according to her very wonderful biographer on whom uh, whose work I drew on throughout the piece Jerry Roberts um, that she loved the sort of starched clothes and white gloves and ceremonies and teas and processionals that came with Catholic school um, though she herself you know she she did not convert to Catholicism or anything um, and but she's this this daughter of privilege. She gets married and has a child young um, in when she had her first paying job, has to leave that job when she has the child, gets divorced, and then doesn't really need to have a job, right? Because she, she does come from money. And but is one of the fascinating things about her is that in her 20s, she is offered by the governor, Pat Brown, a job on the 
Women's uh, Parole and Sentencing Board in California. A, a person who has this, she always said it was because she did a post-graduation Coro Fellowship in San Francisco, where she did a, was part of a group report on criminal justice. It also happens that the governor was a patient of her father's, but either way, somehow she gets a, a you know, paid gig over a period of six years in which she is a member of the board that decides sentence lengths um, for female incarcerated women in California um, for everything from sort of public drunkenness to violent crimes. And she and I wound up talking for the piece about how in that period in the early 60s, many of the people she was sentencing were abortion providers um, because abortion was still illegal in, in California. That's a fascinating detail that I had no idea about before I, I started writing this piece. Um, then she runs for the San Francisco Board of Supervisors in 1969 and nobody expects her to win. Um, she wasn't the first woman elected to the Board of Supervisors, but there'd only been one one person to serve, one woman to serve before her. And she, the press doesn't really cover her. She runs a campaign that's largely funded by her family. Now it's well funded by her family. There are auctions of like Ansel Adams prints and her father, you know, auctioning off a free surgery. And it was, you know, it was a very, very expensive campaign, but she was not a political insider. Um, and she ran on her first name, Diane, which of course was differentiated. San Francisco at that point was still a very macho political town with an old kind of Irish and Italian um, political macho hierarchy. And it was just really in flux with the sort of hippie Haight-Ashbury invasion, the, the slow building of a gay community, which is the community, one of the, one of the places on which Feinstein as this candidate in 1969 drew, she, she saw the potential power of a gay voting bloc in San Francisco. And that was one of her early constituencies were, were gay voters, as well as local conservationists, sort of environmentalists, but more conservationists. Yeah. Um, and she shocks the city by winning. It's like an upset win. The, the papers the next day, Blair news of it, you know, it reminded me so much of having lived through AOCs, even though their politics are extremely different. Um, the sort of shock of this woman coming from nowhere, and she actually gets the top number of votes in these board of, in the Board of Supervisors election, which makes her the head of the board. And so she's on, she, she wins in 1969, and winds up on the, running the Board of Supervisors in San Francisco and turning it into this, again, this institutionalized um, bastion of civic authority um, and turns it, you know, has meetings and makes it a kind of full-time job. Whereas a lot of the other supervisors historically had other jobs that they needed to earn money at and were doing the board of supervisors as a part-time gig. She sort of turns it into this technocratic institution and, and gets into every area of the city, has a real love of the police and the fire department. And in this period in the seventies, she also, and she is, she's a moderate, although it's, her ideology is very weird. It jumps all over the place over the years. And mostly what she seems to believe in, again, is that, is the functioning of top-down authority. And she really believes that in order for that, for governments, you know, civic governments, obviously, federal legislative bodies to function, you need to have consensus and comedy and working the powerful people at the top working with each other in order to produce laws and regulations and rules and protections right that seems to be her more than any left right ideology mm -hmm. i think what she 
I came to understand her belief system as being about the functioning of systems, but very hierarchical systems where the where the relationships at the top are kept solid. And that means sort of hopscotching around. You you don't go too far left, you don't go too far right. Um, and and that that's true in the Board of Supervisors, and she gets known as this moderate. And in this changing city where there are increasingly left-wing political commitments, but the pushback of a very right-wing conservative establishment, she finds herself, she runs for mayor twice in 71 and 75 and loses both times. And in 1978, um, her second husband has died and she's just met her third husband. And it's a period of real violence in San Francisco. There were, um, it's, it was a wild period in San Francisco that I learned a lot about. There were, um, there had been a series of bombings, more than 70 bombings in the Bay Area. Um, there had been, I don't write about this in the piece because it was, it actually took up too much space to, to explain, but Jim Jones had been building what was called the People's Temple, yeah. um, <laughs> uh, pulling 900 people, you know, many low-income people in San Francisco into his, and, and he was a political figure, right? He organized, he got out the vote for candidates. And so politicians in San Francisco knew him. And then 900 of them traveled with him to Guyana where they, you know, in November of 1978, committed a mass murder suicide. Mm -hmm. And there was actually a California congressman and a reporter were shot getting too close to that location. It was incredible violence. There had been a, a bomb placed outside the window of Feinstein's daughter's bedroom that would have gone off except the temperature dropped too low. It was just a, an incredibly intense time in, in San Francisco. And Feinstein had decided that there was no place for her in politics and she was not going to run for mayor again um, in in 79 and, and in fact she was probably going to leave politics and uh she there had also been some um tension on the board of supervisors and a man that she had mentored a former cop named dan white who'd been a kind of conservative force had had been very frustrated and quit the board and then wanted to have his job back and she had urged the liberal mayor george Moscone, to give him his job back and Moscone had declined, listening instead to her fellow. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress. Instead of perfection, you don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M dot com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Board member Harvey Milk, who is the first openly gay um, 
person elected in the state of California, one of the first openly gay politicians elected in the United States. Um, and Milk had advised Moscone, don't give Dan White his job back. You know, he's going to hinder your liberal agenda. And so Moscone had declined. Dan White was distressed. Moscone had asked Feinstein, who was kind of his mentor and friend, to try to calm him down. She'd gone to work. This is just 10 days after this mass murder-suicide that had happened in Guyana. All of San Francisco was in disarray. And Feinstein was there on this November day when her colleague Dan White came in through the basement of um, City Hall and went to meet with Mayor Moscone and shot him and killed him and then ran past Feinstein, who called to him and said, Dan, you know, I want to talk to you. And he said, I got to do something first. And he asked Milk to come into his office and he shot and killed Harvey Milk. Mm -hmm. And it was Feinstein who um, saw him run out, went into the office saw Milk's body and went to take his pulse and her finger slipped into the bullet hole in his wrist. And that is how Diane Feinstein, who was the um, head of the Board of Supervisors, became the first female mayor of San Francisco in 1978. Yeah, no, it's, it's an incredible story. It's a real hinge point because as you said, she was like on the verge of leaving politics. Yeah. And then like everything that came after, you know, uh, uh, her mayorship and then later this, the Senate uh, race uh, wouldn't have happened. But also like, I think, you know, the uh, the assassinations, um, they play into like her uh, view of politics that you like outlined perfectly, like in the sense of, you know, in this sort of chaotic environment, you know, like she will be the mayor that brings the city together and like, you know, has the sort of meetings and is the sort of conduit for um, um, uh, kind of uh, building that elite consensus. Um, and I, I mean, I, I like the way you formulated it. I, I would suggest that, you know, there's ways there's different ways of dividing up the political spectrum, like sort of left, right, but there's also like sort of systems politics and anti-systems politics. Exactly. And in that sense, like, you know, like Weinstein is like the sort of, you know, pro-systems uh, 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 person. Um, uh, and one has to, I mean, I, th I think like, um, uh, I'll just say like for re uh, listeners, like, you know, I think one of the great things about your piece is obviously you don't necessarily share these, this point of view, but I think you explain it in a way that it like, like, like it makes like sort of sense um, you know, not just historically, but sort of emotionally, like it would make sense that someone from that world, but also who has those experiences would embrace systems politics so much. It's sort of wild to me. I have to say in the reporting of this piece, I immediately went to a lot of people I know and sort of, um, you know, feel certain ideological affinity with in San Francisco. I've always been sort of curious, you know, I worked for Salon for a really long time and Salon is based in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I knew a lot of people who were very engaged in not just democratic politics, but pretty left politics in San Francisco. And many of them are fierce critics of Dianne Feinstein, but also like really fierce. My whole, you know, my whole adult life, you know, there aren't many, there's no, nobody on the left that I know really loves Dianne Feinstein. But in San Francisco, it is true that there's always been this kind of like, weird measure of affection that's not held for any other you know like there yeah. there is and and doing re researching this piece and talking to people i began to understand it a little bit more because i think there was something about that period that's it's very hard for me to imagine what it was like but that there was a sense that that systems was at least briefly something that that community needed and that provided a a measure of relief. And I don't mean to lionize her from afar or romanticize this horror, you know, retroactively, but, but it lasted in a way, you know, I quote in the piece, 
uh, Cleve Jones, who is a kind of legendary labor and gay rights activist. And he says, like, I'm a, I'm a left queer radical labor activist and Diane Feinstein is driven and he was he was a, a young intern for Harvey Milk and was also at City Hall the day that Milk was killed and but he spoke with this combination of of real critique of her politics but also a bizarrely rugged affection for her and um it's, it's very fascinating to me that there is still even among some people some people just you know have no time, space, or memory for any of this. But there was something that she offered that city. I will also say, and this is important, she winds up being the mayor from 78 um, through the 80s for nine years. And of course, she's the mayor through the AIDS crisis, which hit San Francisco so hard. And she has a really spotty, again, that kind of hopscotching record around gay rights, you know? Um, she signed some of the earliest city legislation um, uh, protecting um, protecting uh, gay people and, uh, pro and prohibiting discrimination, but then vetoes some same-sex partnership legislation in 1982 that makes her a very, um, like, the gay community was incredibly critical and really protested her and vilified her in a lot of ways. But then she also works and, and she's also behind a lot of very sort of prim anti-pornography stuff that, that San Francisco's gay community um, sort of just openly mocked, you know? Um, but, but then she also steers the city through AIDS. And one thing that Cleve Jones, who was a very active um, activist in that period, told me is that he remembered that his friends from New York, of course, another city really devastated by AIDS. Um, he remembers thinking of the comparison between how much his friends in New York just were so angry and hated Ed Koch, who, who was a terrible mayor through AIDS, versus the kind of gratitude, even though there was so much anger at her, there was also a kind of gratitude at Feinstein's ability to get funding and, and, you know, and, and Randy Schultz is, is pretty complimentary about her in his book and the band played on, which is to, to my mind is one of the definitive accounts of that, that period. And he notes that while accounting for all of the anger that there was at her, that was very real and very legitimate, he also notes that the bar was so low at that point for, for politicians, including Democratic politicians, that Feinstein, for all of her very real shortcomings when it comes to this stuff, he calls her, and I'm, I, don't, I don't have it in front of me, but the sort of best of the mainstream politicians when it, nationally when it came to gay rights. And again, that's reflecting a very low bar but and and he also argues that in part it's because she was ahead of her time on the board of supervisors and did get some of that early legislation in the 70s that e that means that there's even a same-sex partnership question to be answered by a mayor in 1982 which was so far ahead of you know any other city in the country that she vetoes it but the whole reason she has it on her desk in part is because of of some stuff she was doing in the seventies at the board of supervisors. It's it, you know it's a very complicated yeah. story, um, and and very fraught. And there's not an easy answer, um, but there is no question that if you look at the stewardship of San Francisco versus New York through the AIDS crisis, Feinstein in San Francisco, you know, is is way ahead of Ed Koch in New York City. 
Well, I really like that formulation of like she's the best of the sort of mainstream politicians. Like in some ways, um, and I think that gets at the heart of a lot of the tensions in your piece. Like she does represent like you know however one could criticize on one particular issue or the other the sort of you know. Um, uh, centrist consensus within the Democratic Party, and that you know, in a way that it's not just a purely cynical, like you know, Dick Morris type, like let's stay in power, but an, an actual, like a real attempt, you know, like to incorporate different points of view and to 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 to, to really build a consensus. So, so there's something. I mean, I mean, I think I think that's the 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 sort of the case for her. But I, mean, I think your your piece also raises inevitably, you know. And not just because of the uh, you know the issue of the sort of cognitive health, but just the age. Like the, there's a sense in which if you have a political party that you know of people who are whose main experiences were formed in the '60s and '70s, um, you know, like how responsive are they going to be to you know uh, what's happening in the United States now? Um, and yeah, I mean, like again, um, maybe, maybe the way to kind of put it is like how much like is gerontocracy a problem? Yes, um, <laughs> yes, yes. Let me stop you there. Yeah. Yes, is it's a problem. Is the Democratic Party part problem, or is it a problem within the system, or is it a problem of individuals like Feinstein just not knowing to like you know retire or not knowing how to retire? I would, I can't imagine her like ever giving up office because I think this is this is her life. Right. So I think there are the, there's there are several separate questions. One is the personal question about Diane Feinstein individually. And yes, I think you're right. Based on my reporting, this is her life. Lots of people told me that in in various forms. You know that this is, you know, I don't I don't think a lot of people can imagine what her life would be outside the Senate. But she's 89 years old. I think I think there's I mean, um, she she had a real primary challenge in 2018 from Kevin DeLeon in in California from the left. Um, which she survived the and and so then this gets to there's the there's the personal question and then there is which is that her entire life has been invested in these systems including the senate which she sort of reveres um and it's not just the senate it's like procedures it's power it's you know all this shit that she clearly just thinks is the key to to forward motion even when it is obviously stalled, halted, non-functional, right? But she really believes in that. But then there's the systemic critique, which is that that body that she reveres also really does reward seniority yeah. so that whatever her current state of cognitive health or infirmity, by sitting on as a senior senator on an, on an appropriations committee, she has more power to get money for her state and therefore the people who are voting for her and who indeed helped her to survive that really robust challenge she got in 2018 from the left and you know decisively win a 2018 election when she is you know in her late 80s because they know that her body there on that committee can get them money and that is this that is an issue with a system that is broken i mean that's something that i encountered in a you know writing about susan collins several years ago in maine where collins seniority no matter how angry people are at her in the state of maine the fact that she has seniority on committees that can get this state stuff that it needs is an argument in her favor so so the experience and the seniority like it it creates incentives for there to be this gerontocracy and it is you are so 
both parties have a gerontocracy, right? We are talking, it's, it, this is not just about Feinstein, this is about Chuck Grassley, it's about Pat Leahy, it's about Mitch McConnell. Um, you know, all of these people who are over 80 years old and are in the senior most positions in their party and the system, the system incentivizes them staying there until they literally die in office, right? And there's a history of this. Strom Thurmond was 100 years old by the time that he left the Senate and then he like instantly died, okay? So, and he was, Strom Thurmond was barely sentient. Um, and I think, you know, I, I say in the piece that there's a lot of critique about like, why hold out Feinstein? You know, this is this is gendered and it's and it's like, right, yes, yes. And we could talk about that. But but also like we're we should we should make our standards higher than Strom Thurmond did it. Right. That's a bad bar to aim for. Um, so so, yeah, there are these there are these systemic things in place. And I think one thing that you said that I think is really true is that here's where the Republicans have been better and they've been better over the course of this same period. Right. From the mid 20th century, major victories of progressive social movements at legislative and judicial levels. Republicans started strategizing. They started strategizing in states and in local elections and they started building a youth arm, right? So that they still have the gerontocracy in place at the top. Um, but they also have now, I mean, the Republican Party is a, is a different animal. And in fact, some of the some of the youthful arm has, in fact, I think, further radicalized it. But what you see is actually the seniors bowing to the to the hard right radicalism of their youthful members, right? So you have you have seen that you know, with her colleagues and peers in the Senate, Lindsey Graham, you know, McConnell's his own beast, you know, permitting the sort of radical insurgent tendencies of what was called the Tea Party and then, you know, sort of evolved as the hard right faction within the Republican Party so that it's spread to the seniors. Whereas in the Democratic Party, you have a rising generation of, of stars who are you know, in a sort of counterpoint to the Republican Party, lefter in their politics, their ideology, and their their approach to how to make structural reform. But what you see is the seniors in the Democratic Party being totally resistant to that youthful ring, that, that youthful wing. And in the Republican Party, you see the seniors kind of bowing to it. That's my that's my take. Yeah, no, I, I think I think that's absolutely right, and I think I mean in some ways it's a sort of asymmetrical polarization where the Republicans have evolved much more quickly to being a real parliamentary party of the sort that one sees in you know uh, Europe, Canada, and Australia of having a sort of coherent mission uh, and 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 factions, of course, but those factions um, uh, uh, coalesce around a, a mission. And one thing that a coherent party does is that it like pushes out older members and it cultivates a youth wing. Uh, and the Democrats, you know, are heading in that direction, They're, but at a much slower pace and is much more a typical, you know, 20th century American political party, which is all based on seniority and is all based on consensus building. Um, yeah, and it, so, so I, 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 I think your article really illuminates the, this sort of problem. Uh, it's it, it's also interesting as I think about it that the seniors who have they actually leverage the seniority right so Mitch McConnell, as the sort of senior Republican, like, I mean, 
has done the masterful job. He stole a Supreme Court seat, right? Like he has done a masterful job of doing the thing that the person in the party with the most power could do, right? Which is to actually break or manipulate the systems to work as they were intended to. And um, like, it's actually a really canny use of the elder members of the party to, to, to apply all of the, their senior authority um, in really dastardly ways. And that you just don't see any of that intergenerational coordination happening with the Democrats. Instead, you see just these clashes between senior membership that doesn't want to make way for, or like fight hard to create the path for the younger people to come through, right? Fight hard, do the McConnell move of making the, the you know, the, the move at the top so that the younger people can come through and populate the party. You know, I think that's I think I think I think that's that's absolutely right, and I think, uh, yeah, no, it's it's a real kind of problem. Uh, but I th I think that uh, your article, like you know, brilliantly, like you know, not only tells the story of Dianne Feinstein, but really, like you know, I think moves this issue of uh, gerontocracy to the forefront and really illuminates why it's a particular problem for the Democrats or for the left. I mean, I, I would just like on a closing note, uh, just add, I mean, I think it's easier for a party that wants to stop things and wants to be obstructionist and hold on to power yeah. to like the uh, to work uh, in the way the Republicans have. And I think the Democrats uh, are sort of anchored down by like the kind of the system uh, and which is which makes it all the more frustrating why Dianne Feinstein is so perversely committed to preserving it. But in any case, you've been very, uh, 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 I want to thank you for, for, for being here. I think it was a great conversation. And uh, uh, I think uh, I, I learned a lot. Thank you so much, Jeet. I really appreciate it. It was great to talk to you. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.